Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning, open to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. In a moment, we will read verses 13 through 15. I'm reminded that we're here this morning because we love the truth. At least that's why I hope we're here. (laughs) Do you love the truth? If you love the truth, there's something about it that happens to your heart and to your life. If you love the truth, you can't get enough of the truth. (laughs) It does something else as well. It makes you repel that which is untrue and that which is a lie. If you love the truth, you embrace the truth. If you love the truth, you hate all falsehood. You hate all lies. We are here because we believe God's word is true. It is the truth. And so we embrace it wholeheartedly, with open arms, with minds that say, I can't get enough of the truth. At least that's what I say. I can't get enough of the truth. I want it, and I want it to get in me. I want it to be in my heart. I want it to be in my mind. I want it to consume me. I want the truth to bleed out of me when I am cut. Bibline, Bible truth. What flows out of you when you are cut? Is it Bible? Is it truth? Is it God's word? Because it's truth that brings healing. It's truth that brings peace. It's truth that brings comfort and solace. It's truth that brings hope. So would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? Galatians 5, 
beginning in verse 13 through verse 15. And when I get to the end of verse 15, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. Let's read God's word together. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts and our minds to your truth this morning. For it is what we need to hear. Give us ears to hear what you and what your Holy Spirit say to us, your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Freedom was the last word, as portrayed at least by Hollywood, upon that Scottish patriot, William Wallace. Not much is known about his life. We're not even sure that that was his last word. But it does, however, stir something in our hearts. Often because we believe that Freedom is something that's worth fighting for. And we're thankful for those who have fought valiantly, courageously for our freedom. There is something in man that sees freedom as good. It's something to be desired. You can see this in children, can't you? They want to be free. They do not want any constraints put upon them. And how many adolescents can't wait until they are free, out of the house, free. And then reality hits when you tell them you are free to pay for your own car insurance. You are free to pay your own rent. You are free to provide for yourselves how quickly the tune changes. There is something, though, that in us that longs for freedom, that sees the benefit of being free. But there's one major problem with this word freedom, and it's how we often define freedom. What does it mean to be free? Often our world, even our own human hearts, define freedom as I can do whatever I want to do, Whenever I want to do it. That's often how many people think about freedom, isn't it? Any constraint, any restriction, anything or anyone who would tell me what to do is bad. We think that the only way that I can be really, really be free is if I have complete and total freedom to do whatever it is that I want. This is the lie that the world has bought and the lie that many youths have bought and a lie that can cling on to them into adulthood and 
it is a definition that in the end will destroy their lives. Why do I call this definition of freedom a lie? Because anyone who holds to that definition of freedom knows that they are not free. If they try to live their lives with no rules, no bounds, completely unrestricted, with absolutely no thought, self-control, they've not found freedom, they've only found slavery. Doing whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, does not free you. It shackles you, and in fact, it binds you. And the more you continue to pursue that definition of freedom, the more and more enslaved you are. If freedom is defined as a license to live however you decide, with the emphasis on pleasing and indulging and gratifying yourself, then make no mistake, my friend, you will only ever know misery. Paul, in these verses in Galatians, is making an appeal for the Galatians to live in freedom, true freedom. This is not national freedom. This is not economic freedom. This is personal freedom. This is biblical freedom. This is Christian freedom. This is freedom of one's heart and of one's soul. Inner freedom is expressed in the way that you live your life. This is the freedom that you want, the freedom that you desire, the freedom that will bring joy and contentment into your life. It's a freedom, however, that doesn't start with you. It's a freedom that comes to us from Christ. It's a freedom that begins with who Christ is and what Christ has done so that you can be free. Paul has already expressed that in chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set you free. True freedom is a work of Christ. Therefore, if you want to know freedom, you have to know Christ. There is no way around it. There is no path to freedom apart from Jesus Christ. He is the beginning of freedom. And it is He who gives us freedom. Listen to what it says in the Gospel according to John. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And it is He who defines what true freedom is. Freedom comes from knowing the truth. And we know the truth, as I've already said, from God's Word. Listen to what it says again in the Gospel according to John. This is chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you know Jesus? Do you abide or remain or immerse yourself in His Word? Do you know the truth that comes to us through the Word? Has the truth set you free? If you want to know true freedom, not freedom as defined by the world, not fake freedom, not pseudo-freedom, but real freedom that breathes breath into your lungs, real freedom that courses through your veins because you've been given a new heart by Jesus Christ, real freedom that is expressed in your love for Christ by the way that you live your life, then Paul wants these Galatians to know what true freedom looks like. 
because false teachers and false teaching was threatening them, was threatening their freedom. And so Paul is saying, here is what true freedom looks like. Here is how you define it. The false teachers might have said they were giving you freedom, but they were seeking to strip you of your freedom. They were seeking to enslave you. Brings us to an important point. The church has always been and is even now being threatened with bondage. From its earliest conception, the time of Paul, up through today, the church and Christians are being threatened with bondage. Something or someone other than Christ wants to capture you, wants to bind you, wants to enslave you, and wants to oppress you. But we notice something, don't we, about this bondage? It comes incrementally. That is, it comes little by little. If we're not watching out, if we're not looking out, if we're not on alert, if we don't hold the biblical definition of freedom, there is a danger that's lurking because this bondage will come in little by little. It would be easy to detect if it came all at once. But that's not often how it works. We're being threatened with bondage. Will we succumb to it? Or will we fly to Christ? Where our true freedom lies and say, our allegiance lies with Christ. Paul now comes to us and tells us three ways in which this true freedom is expressed in our lives and in the church so that we can combat against the bondage, so that we can fight against the bondage, so that we can spot it and say, no, we will not be taken captive, we will not be enslaved to this, but we will live in the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. So how do we know if we're living in this true freedom? Number one, true freedom focuses on service. True freedom focuses on service. We start here in verse 13. For you were called to freedom. This is the call of God in the lives of Christians. We are those who have been called by God to salvation. There is a general call of the gospel. General call of the gospel is the call of the gospel that goes out to the entire world. It's this general call that says, repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it goes out to everyone. Who should we share the gospel with? Everybody. But there is also the special saving call of God that comes in the life of one who believes. This is not a generic call, it is a personal call, it is specific, and it is effectual and irresistible. When God calls you, when you hear the invitation of Christ, come to me, all who are heavy laden, I will give you rest, you can do nothing else. You have to come. 
God's saving call never fails. So when God called you, dear Christian, and said your name, and called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, opened to you the beauty of the gospel, opened to you the beauty of Jesus Christ, there was nothing you could do but come to him. Have you seen it? Have you heard the call? of Christ saying, come, come out of your sin, come out of your bondage, come out of your slavery, come to me and I will give you rest. Like that burden, if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, he has the main character, Christian, have this burden upon his back. Do you ever feel like that? You have this burden on your back. But what happens when Christian is saved? The burden falls off his back. The weight is gone. The weight of his sin, the weight of his guilt, the weight of his condemnation is gone. All because of Christ. This call that God gives to us in our lives is a call of his grace. We are called to salvation, called to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, called to repent of our sin by God's grace. We are not called because there's anything that is in us that makes us worthy to be called of God. It's all of His doing. And so it's by grace that we are called to, what it says here in verse 13, we're called to freedom. It's such an idea that can run contrary to what we often think. We think of freedom as how we have attained our own freedom. What did you do to secure your own freedom? But think of this call to freedom. It's not freedom because we sought it out. It's not freedom because we took the initiative to gain our freedom. It's not freedom because we fought for our rights. It's a freedom that comes to us because God sought us out. It's a freedom that we receive because He took the initiative. It's a freedom of because what Christ did to fight for our freedom. You, your call to freedom, dear Christian, is made possible because Christ died for you. Don't skip over your call to freedom because it was costly. It cost Christ being mocked, despised, and shamed. It cost Christ being nailed to a cross It cost Christ bearing all of our guilt and our sin. It cost Christ going underneath the judgment and wrath of God in our place. It cost Jesus his own blood. It cost Jesus being forsaken by God the Father. It cost Jesus giving up his spirit, breathing his last, and willingly accepting death, not because he deserved to die, but because we deserve to die. Your call to freedom cost Jesus Christ his life. You have been called to freedom, and that freedom is precious. Why would we ever give it up? 
Why would we ever trample upon it? Why would we ever disgrace it by the way that we live our lives? Do our lives accurately exhibit this call to freedom? What is the picture with our lives that we give to the watching world with our actions and with our words? Do we tell the truth about Christianity? Following Christ is not bondage. Is that what our world thinks? Do they think, well, Christianity is just a bunch of rules? Just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Myriad of ways they will try to strip me of my fun, any joy, any freedom. Let the call to freedom be the fruit of our message. The message that people desperately need to hear. When we are calling people and saying, come to Christ, we're not saying come to bondage, we're saying come to freedom. You want to be free, then come to Christ. What freedom are we called to? What freedom is it that we herald to others? It's the freedom from the awful bondage of having to merit the favor of God. This is the distinction between true followers of Christ and all others. We have been freed from trying to work our way to God. Everyone else says you have to perform, you have to work, you have to earn, you have to deserve God's acceptance by the way that you live your life. We say freedom is found in Christ's redemption on our behalf. Therefore, this is freedom from being underneath the law. This is freedom from being under the dominion of sin. This is freedom for the Galatians from the Mosaic law, the law that could never save them. Freedom from the law that only increased their sin, brought their sin to light. Freedom from the law that ultimately condemned them. Do you rejoice in your freedom in Christ? Paul knows our human nature. He knows our struggle. He knows our difficulty because when we hear that word freedom, there needs to be some guardrails, don't there? And so now Paul puts a guardrail on the side of the road. Lest we fall over the cliff, the guardrail says this, do not abuse your freedom. You've been given this freedom. You've been called to this freedom. You didn't do anything to gain this freedom, to get it, but don't abuse this freedom. You have been freed Thank God, this does not mean that you can use your freedom as a cover-up for the flesh. The flesh, as we will see later in the book of Galatians, is opposed to the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. There is the danger of living in the flesh. The Christian is to crucify the flesh so that they might live according to the Spirit of God. The flesh, our flesh, is that which is opposed to the Spirit. Our flesh is the identity of human beings in Adam. It's that which still lingers in us, dear Christian. It's still trying to hold on. It's those depraved inclinations which are natural to man in his present state and which, though subdued right now, as Christians, they're subdued. They are by no means completely extinguished. 
even in those who have been regenerate, made new in Christ. And so Paul tells us that freedom that has been given to us is freedom not so that we can indulge our flesh, not so we can do whatever we want to do. The one who has put his or her faith in Christ cannot and must not do that. The flesh runs rampant, and while the world says that is freedom, we know that is complete bondage. Having self-control, on the other hand, is the demonstration of the fruit of freedom. 1 Peter 2.16 says this, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. True freedom is not selfishness, it is service. If you are focused on yourself, if your freedom is all about you, if you use your freedom for your own gains, for your own ends, for what you want, it's a good sign that you are not really free. How many people want freedom, but they don't want to serve? How many people want others to serve them, but they don't want to serve or to give in return? Service first and ultimately is to God, but just as necessary is service to others. In fact, what Paul says here in verse 13 is shocking. He says basically this, in love, act as slaves to one another. Wait, aren't we free? Now Paul wants us to act like slaves? Yes, here is the paradox of Christian living. Freedom is no longer living for yourself, but living for him who for our sake died and rose again so that then we are free to serve one another in the church in love. Love is both the reason why we serve others and love is also the manner in which we serve others. Love is both the reason of why we serve one another, and love is the manner in which we serve others. Why do I want to serve you? Because I love you. Because I love you as a brother and sister in Jesus Christ. Because you are one for whom Christ shed his blood for. You've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Why do I love you? Why do I want to serve you? Because I love you. And how am I supposed to serve you? How do I do it? with right biblical and true love that is self-giving, self-sacrificing, humble love. Martin Luther had it right when he says this, a Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. How is it possible? How is it possible for us to serve one another through love? And the only way we can do it is if we look to Him. Look to Jesus Christ, where it says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to, what? Serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. This is the ultimate service. Jesus made no demands, even though he could have rightfully made demands. And instead he gave of himself completely. To the end. 
Are you focused on serving or are you focused on being served? Do you know the true freedom that comes as you are focused on serving others? Serve, give of yourself. Let us not limit our service to physical and tangible things. May our service also be spiritual service to one another. Such servants that strengthen the hearts and faith of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Number two, true freedom fulfills the law. True freedom fulfills the law. We come now to verse 14, and it perplexes us. Perplexes us because if you've been following, following along with us in Galatians, Paul has been warning the Galatians about the law. He says no one is justified by the works of the law. He says if you are circumcised, and you think that that makes you right with God, be warned because now you're obligated to keep the whole law. He said the law is increasing transgressions. Being under the law is to be under the dominion of sin. It is true that the law misapplied was dangerous. And that was a threat to the Galatian churches. And that is a threat to churches today. That happens when you're not proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. When misapplied, the law is negative, but Paul now turns and gives us this positive side of the law, doesn't he? He says the whole law is fulfilled in one word, or one command, or one imperative. Do you like commands? Do you receive commands? You go through the book of Proverbs ever? Who is the wise person? The wise person receives instruction. And so here is this command given to us, dear brother and sister. And it says this, the law is fulfilled. That word fulfilled is set in contrast to Galatians chapter 5, verse 3, with that word that says in my translation, ESV, says keep. Or we could say, obey or do. There it says that if you accept circumcision, you are obligated to keep or obey or do the whole law for your justification, for your acceptance before God. Here, though, it is the fulfilling of the law that is the consequence of justification and the Spirit's work of regeneration in the life of the believer. So what are we saying? We're saying that as Paul says here, the whole law is fulfilled in the word, the one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is not saying that you need to obey this command in order to save yourself. He's saying this is the fruit of your salvation. Because you have been saved, because you have been justified, because you have been called to freedom, here is the proper, necessary response. How are we, though, able to fulfill the whole law? This fulfilling is first passive. It first points us away from ourselves, and it points us to Christ who said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law has already been fulfilled because Jesus, who is love, has died for sinners. Therefore, as Christians love one another, they too fulfill the law, not in the sense that they attain any perfection, but they are now living in God's new reality through the strengthening power of forgiveness. 
And would we see, would we see that Jesus' love for his neighbor is displayed perfectly and ultimately in his death? Do you want to know what it looks like to love your neighbor? All you have to do is look to Jesus. He perfectly loved his neighbor. He always loved his neighbor. And it was his sacrifice for his neighbor that saved his neighbor. We cannot do everything that he did. That is, we cannot save anyone, but we can imitate him. We can follow him into loving our neighbor. Maybe we would think of that question that was asked to Jesus, but who is, who is my neighbor? Your neighbor is the one whom you see as you walk down the street and you want to cross to the other side of the road to get around them, to avoid them. It's the one who you meet who is unlovable. Your neighbor is the one that you would want to run away from. We look around, dear brothers and sisters, we see our neighbors all around us. We see our neighbors here in this church. We see our neighbors who live next door to us. We see our neighbors in the supermarket. We see our neighbors everywhere. And we're reminded of our call. Love them. This is one word, one command. It's what Paul uses to summarize the whole law. And he takes it directly from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. We also know that when Jesus teaches, he says this is the second great commandment that flows from the first. You will not be able to love your neighbor the way that God has designed for you if you do not first love God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And then what does Jesus say? And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This quotation here that we have in Galatians 5, 14 really expands and develops what Paul has already said in Galatians 5, 6 when he talked about faith working through love. And there is, I think, sometimes an underhanded reading of this verse. A misguided reading of this verse. A reading that would say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and some people would say, that means first you need to love yourself really well. Some people would say, you need to learn to love yourself. And I would say, using all of my theological terminology, that's baloney. You already love yourself. My children, guess what? I don't need to teach them how to love themselves. They do it on their own. <laughs> they love themselves. I don't say, okay, now this is how you love yourself. In fact, think about that this morning. How much have you already loved yourself today? I mean, even in some ways that, that are appropriate. Do you clean yourself today? Do you feed yourself today? Do you clothe yourself today?
Loving ourselves comes naturally to us. Would loving our neighbor come as naturally? I don't have to think about loving myself. I just do it. Would our prayer be that our love for one another would be the same way? I don't have to think about it. It just flows out of me. How can that be so? How can that be possible? In the flesh, if I try to love my neighbor as myself, it is impossible. But as one empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, it is possible. There again, you cannot just skip the first commandment and go to the second one. If you do not do the first, if you do not love God with everything that you are, you will never be able to love others the way that God has designed you to love others. Think about that. God has designed you to love other people. May we live according to that design. And maybe, just maybe now, you are here and imagining that you know this command well enough. I've got it in the bag. I know what it is to love my neighbor as myself. You don't really need to tell me or teach me, Pastor, to do this. I got it. Maybe you are patting yourself on the back today. Man, you do a good job at loving your neighbor as yourself. But listen again to what Martin Luther says. When people imagine that they know the command to love well enough, they are utterly deceived. It's a dangerous place to be if you think you've got this command down pat. Maybe you should think again. Maybe you should ask the Lord to help you love your neighbor as yourself. Final point this morning, number three. True freedom forsakes church cannibalism. True freedom forsakes church cannibalism. In 1842, two missionaries from Scotland named George Turner and Henry Nisbet arrived in the archipelago that's called New Hebrides or now called Vanuatu. They spent their first seven months on the island called Tana. The residents of this island were well known and they were known for one thing, cannibalism. Yet this was the very place these two men started their missionary journey. And it was their efforts that opened, their door, opened the door for another missionary 16 years later named John G. Patton. You can read about John G. Patton and his fascinating autobiography. I would encourage you to get that and read that to hear how the Lord used him and worked through him in his ministry. I can't imagine being missionaries entering into a cannibalistic tribe wondering if you would be eaten alive. Yet how many step through the doors of the church wondering the same thing? Here is the contrast. True freedom leads to service, love, and so fulfilling the law, but true freedom also forsakes church cannibalism. This is the opposite of serving one another in love. This could be the very thing that was rearing its ugly head in the Galatian churches. It was community-destroying selfishness. But if you bite and devour one another, that word bite 
in the Bible is often used of serpents that would bite people. We can think of such an action of biting one another as only mimicking the initial serpent, Satan himself. And with the biting and devouring goes poisonous speech with which if left unchecked will be the undoing and the destruction of the church. Biting and devouring is bickering and infighting among those people in the church. It is Christians, people who are supposed to be united in Christ, exploiting one another for their own personal gain and for their own personal pride. Listen to what James says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. It's quite the picture that Paul paints here. Almost like someone in the church has been surrounded by a pack of wolves. They have all pounced upon this person in unison. They are tearing their Pray from limb to limb. They have stripped every last piece of meat from their bones and then they are spit out. They have been completely decimated. And Paul says, that can happen in the church. What happens when backbiting and devouring takes place in the church? It leads to consumption. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul says, watch out, church, lest you become cannibalistic and consume your own. Beware of this. Consumers of the church are those who consume the church. Consumers of the church are those who consume the church. If church is about you, If church is about what you get out of it, having your preferences met, having your agenda accomplished, having your back itched, make no mistake, that we will consume one another if we act that way. Because then the church is about us, what we want, what we desire, what makes us happy, what satisfies our own flesh. Those who bite and those who devour are those who consume and do not care about Christ. They might put on a nice face, they might say that they do, but how can they when they use their freedom as an opportunity to indulge their flesh? Our sin is not self-contained. It eats the church alive. One more quote from a man named Chrysostom. He says this, By bitings and devourings, Paul does not mean a literal biting and devouring. He refers to something more pernicious. The harm by one who tastes human flesh is not so great as that done by the one who sinks his teeth into the soul. In proportion as the living soul is more precious than the corruptible body, so much worse is the harm done. It harms the soul. That's what happens when he says, if you bite and devour one another and consume one another, you're harming souls. Do you think about that? Do you ever think what might harm the spiritual health of someone else? Do you ever think about what might harm the spiritual health of the church, harm the spiritual health of the well-being of those who are around you? Serve one another in love, loving your neighbor as yourself. Don't consume the church. 
Rather, conserve the church, preserve the church, encourage the church, build up the church, strengthen the church. Think this way. In what ways can I support and affirm so-and-so, fill in the blank, so that they are strengthened spiritually? In what ways can I support and affirm, fill in the blank, someone around you, so that they are strengthened, listen, spiritually? Are you strengthening people spiritually? Are you doing good to their hearts and to their souls? After talking to you, is their faith in Jesus Christ built up all the more? Is their boldness for Christ built up all the more? It doesn't happen if you keep to yourself. So let us move out. Let us move towards one another. And when this happens, the love that we have for God shines all the brighter and He gets all the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your precious and true Word this morning. Help us to serve one another in love. Help us to love our neighbor as ourself. And Father, that is difficult because life is very complex. And the ways that we could love one another are so varied and different. Help us to have eyes to see the people around us. Help us to have eyes to see the people who are in spiritual need around us, Father. Help us to see those who need spiritual encouragement. Help us to see those who need spiritual up, building up in their faith. Help us to see those who are tired or weary or struggling. Help us to encourage them to fight the good fight of faith. Father, and help us, for those who don't know Jesus Christ, help us to proclaim the gospel, in love. Father, if there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus Christ, who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I pray that they would do that today. They would turn from their sin, they would turn from the burden that they have on their back, they would come to Jesus, they would put their faith and trust in Him, they would say, I want to now live for Jesus and for Jesus alone. I've been enslaved for too long. I want to know this freedom. And that they would know that freedom today. They would know that joy today. And Father, I pray that this church would be an unstoppable force in serving one another in love, in loving our neighbor as ourself, in being unified around the gospel so that your work, your glorious work, your redeeming work, your saving work would continue in this dark and twisted world. We pray all of this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.